the unthinkable just occurred. You're in a panic. Who's the first person you call? A fixer. When Paula Dean made racist comments, when Michael Vick wanted to control his story around his dogfighting ring, when Wesley Snipes wanted to control his tax fraud fallout, when Chris Webber needed his brand rescued after the Fab Five scandal, they all called the same world-renowned crisis management expert, a fixer, Judy Smith. They aren't the only ones. Mrs. Smith has also been contracted by companies like United Healthcare, Walmart, Waste Management, and AIG. Judy has the ability to play reporters and news outlets like a, like a fiddle. You may remember her serving as the special assistant and deputy press director to President George H.W. Bush. She also aided Monica Lewinsky during the Bill Clinton scandal. There's even an ABC TV series based off of her work. It's called Scandal. Carrie Washington plays her character, a DC fixer. She's not the only fixer. In fact, the best political fixers tend to remain nameless. The media has recently debated whether they uncovered Trump's fixer. The media has long debated the hidden Clinton fixers. Political fixers abound, but they aren't the only ones. There are also crime scene fixers. I could list popular TV show after TV show where we see them at work. There's an argument and a push and suddenly someone lies in a pool of blood on the floor. The fixer comes in and makes it all seem like an accident. Then you have mafia fixers, sometimes called Irish politicians. They help the rich and powerful take out the garbage, usually through threats, a hired hit, or other criminal tactics. But let's not leave out my wife's favorite. I call them the cherished fixers. Have you ever seen the show Fixer Upper on HGTV? They take this dumpy house and they beautify it. Chip and Joanna Gaines, they don't fix sin problems. They fix house problems. In our text, I want to introduce you to the island fixer. See, political fixers get you out ahead of your sin. Crime scene fixers cover up your sin. Mafia fixers allow you to get away with your sin. But the island fixer comes to point out your sin. Paul evangelized the island of Crete and established local churches. Homer called Crete the island of 100 cities. So if there's a church in every city, there's 100 churches on the island. Apparently, they're struggling with leadership structure, struggling with identifying false doctrine, struggling with all-out sin. And what did Paul do when on the island the unthinkable happened? He called his fixer. His name, Titus. Titus was Paul's personal troubleshooter. Paul sent him on the most difficult assignments. Paul sent Titus to a province known as Dalmatia, modern-day Croatia, to deal with historically an extremely hateful church. Paul sent Titus to stir up the Jerusalem church to start giving. Paul sent Titus with a letter to Corinth, which was the church gone wild. Titus went to the hateful church, the stingy church, and the carnal church. Titus was Paul's hitman his green beret, his navy seal. Titus was on the front lines when hell needed to be charged. 
He's used to going into hard places and setting things in order. What's Titus' new assignment? Let's look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Now, the Greek word order is only used one time in the Bible. And don't miss this. The root word of the Greek word is where we get our word, orthodontics. So Titus is looking at these island churches like an orthodontist looks at these teeth. And he says, I see some things that need to be straightened. I see some things that need to be moved around. The spiritual orthodontist Titus needed to put on some gloves and go to work. Verse 5 continues, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The very first thing Paul says to Titus after saying hello in verses 1 through 4 is appoint elders. Titus is literally the, the spiritual chip gains. He's about to tear out some things and he's about to install some things. But it's not walls and cabinets. It's leadership and doctrine. And here's the fixer's blueprint. Step one, implement a leadership structure. And some of you are like, Kyle... Is this whole sermon going to be about church structure and what it should look like? Are we actually talking about qualifications for pastors? Because if so, I'm out on step one. Peace out, Cub Scout. Come to me when you have something a little more relevant. Well, if that's you, and you're asking why is this section about elders important to you, I'll give you seven reasons. Reason number one, some of you will not stay in this church. You are military and God has dropped you here for two years and this is essential in choosing a new church when you move. You need to get this right because your standards for pastors are way too low. Reason number two, because the church should be important to you. It is Jesus' bride. You should care deeply about this. Reason number three, many if not most problems in a church can be traced back to leadership. Reason number four, some of you aspire to be a pastor. You need to evaluate your life to see if you meet these qualifications. Reason number five, we are ordaining a new elder this year. Daniel Hurd, we began the process a year ago in my kitchen with the elders and him. Uh, they began praying about it, we began praying about it. We have six months for you to get to know him, ask questions, and then we will, we will appoint him. Reason number six, uh, some of you are not Christians, and you view pastors like aliens or cult leaders. Well, you need to know what pastors really are and what God says about a pastor. Finally, reason number seven, practically everything on the list of qualifications for an elder is the same list of character traits that every Christian should possess. Even if you're not a pastor, you should aspire for these traits. Titus is to do what? Titus is to appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. Paul didn't tell Titus, in every city, I want you to go and, and appoint a senior pastor and then a staff that answers to him. Like a varsity and then a JV, a hierarchy. A one-man band is not a New Testament model. In fact, every place where the term elder is used, it is plural except for when John and Peter used it to refer to themselves. 
Now, I'm not going to go to war with anyone on this, but there is not one person in the scriptures that is called the pastor, especially not the senior pastor. Except for Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. So I say we reserve that title for Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor, the chief shepherd at Faith Family Church. Now, just because there's not one explicit reference to a one pastor, single elder church in the Bible, doesn't mean they didn't exist. And it's not heretical if they exist today. But we choose plurality because of what we find in this verse. We have no junior varsity elders here. All elders are, have equal say. Now, this does not mean that everyone does an equal amount of preaching. Paul wrote to Timothy showing that some elders primarily do the preaching event. Now, why do churches not have elders? Many possible reasons. A tradition, ignorance, fear of change. But within 15 years of the resurrection, there was a plurality of elders in the church of Jerusalem. Plurality is not only biblical, it is incredibly practical and wise. Let me just share some benefits of it. First benefit, it protects you from mistakes you could make as a lone pastor. We share the burden if plans don't work out. Another benefit, it helps make up for your deficiencies as a pastor. It may surprise some of you, I know it will, but I have a deficiency or two. Now, when I say that, would you say, like, shock? <gasps> let's, let's try again. It may surprise you, but I have some deficiencies. That still, it, it still just wasn't enough for me. Uh, it may surprise you, but I have some deficiencies. That's so much, so much, so much better. Different pastors are gifted in different areas. To use some Bible offices, some are prophets, some priests, some kings. Prophets, those bent towards preaching and teaching. Kings, those gifted in administration. And priests, those compassionate counselors. Only Jesus did all three perfectly. I am built towards prophet. Uh, Dan, Dan Herbster is, is built towards prophet king. Daniel Hurd is, is built towards king priest. Another benefit of a plurality is it guards against sacrificing your family. Larry Osborne, no relation to Ozzy Osborne, said, if you lose your family, you've lost. Plurality provides accountability and encouragement. When needed, honestly critiquing one another and encouraging one another. It allows you to divide up the shepherding responsibilities. It should ensure doctrinal integrity. Not always. It should reinforce the idea that Jesus is the head of the church, not a single pastor. If I leave this church, I'm not planning on it. If I leave this church, we will not have an interim pastor or a search committee. Our elders would just simply preach more. A plurality guards against the celebrity pastor movement that permeates the Christian subculture in most Christian conferences. The church is not built to one, around one rock star senior pastor, but a plurality of servant leaders. Notice in verse 5 who, who is choosing the elders. Notice, verse 5. Titus, an elder. Now, I can only imagine how this went over. <laughs> Titus arrives at at one of the hundred churches on the island, and they say to him, well, just what do you intend to do? Well, I intend to straighten you out, and it's going to hurt. 
And just how do you suppose you're going to do that? Well, first and foremost, I'm going to appoint men who will serve as elders in the church. Well, who gave you the right to do that? He pulls out the letter of Titus and he says, here's a letter from the apostle Paul. If there were no letter, I could just hear what people were saying. Well, I need to be on that search committee because my daughter is going to leave this church if something doesn't, you know, change. Another person says, well, I don't have to be on the committee, but we need to make sure there's somebody on the committee in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. Everyone needs to be represented. Let's make sure we have men and women, tall people and short people, Duke fans and Christians. Let's just get them all in there. The, the church here has to be fairly new because it doesn't talk about removing old elders. I heard one respected pastor whom, whom I listen to and enjoy often. I heard him say this week that the island churches still chose their pastors through a democratic vote. Now that's some congregational gymnastics to pull that from this verse. This is going to, to sound to you countercultural, especially because we have American ears, but the church is not a democracy. It isn't even a republic. Elders are not elected officials so that they might bring so that they might represent their various constituencies in the church body, nor are elders representatives of the people to bring the opinions of the people into the boardroom. Eldership matters because God designed the church to be led, fed, and cared for by the elders. The elders bring discipleship. They bring direction. They bring doctrine. The point of elders is to foster godliness in the church. Now, how many elders is Titus to install in each church? It doesn't give a specific number. At least two. And elders are different than staff. The modern church confuses the two. We, we have elders here, and then we have staff, and then we have Matthew, who's kind of like in the middle because he's in a two-year evaluation process to, to, to be an elder. Elders are, are different than deacons. They're both fixers, but deacons in a physical way and elders in a, in a spiritual way. So the blueprint is implement leadership structure. That's step number one. Step number two, select elders with a healthy home life. Notice verse six. And if anyone is above reproach. Now this word cannot mean sinless because no one would be qualified. So Paul begins to unpack what above reproach looks like. Notice as verse six continues. The husband of one wife. In other words, Titus, you might be tempted to fill the office with the wrong kind of men. And you're going to run the risk of looking at men for the wrong reasons. Men with prestige or charisma or personality or intellect or stature. So here is the qualifications. First, husband of one wife. Now, what does that mean? And what does that not mean? It does not mean you have to be married Paul, who's writing, is not married. Titus, who, appoint, who is appointing, isn't married. Jesus, our senior pastor, wasn't married. Many wonderful pastors have never been married, like John R. Stott. Paul, in another book, actually mentions some advantages of being a single elder. So what does it mean? Literally, this phrase is translated, and it means this. He is to be a one-woman man. His relationship with his wife should illustrate 
Christ's love for the church, his bride. A pastor must love his wife exclusively with his mind, his will, and emotions, not just his body. He doesn't flirt with other women. He doesn't have a wandering eye. And you ask Kyle, what happens if a pastor has an affair? Then he's no longer a one-woman man. He is disqualified. God may again find a place for him to be useful, but to lift him up to the pulpit is to fly in the face of the clear instruction of Scripture. Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavijan, pastored a huge church in Florida. He had an affair, and the elders fired him. He went on to marry the lady whom he had an affair with, and he's still preaching in churches. In fact, preaching this morning, no doubt. Some of you have had a pastor who had an affair, and churches and institutions who neglect the book of Titus still give them a platform. I've said this to the elders, and I will say it again in your presence. If I ever have an affair, never let me back in the pulpit. I am no longer qualified. I've always admired Art Azurdia III. He planted a church in Portland, Oregon. He really pastored for years in obscurity. His church was smaller than ours, but eventually he began to have large platforms. He went to John Piper's conference, went to uh, John MacArthur's conference. He's, he's always been a model for me, a ministry model, which would explain why I wept when I read the letter he wrote to his church. And I quote, Several years ago, prior to the inception of Trinity Church, I strayed from my wedding vows, breaking the covenantal bond I made to my dear wife 36 years ago. More recently, I again violated my marriage commitment. In both instances, I engaged in adulterous relationships that were nothing less than acts of defiance to the will of my God. I confess this sin and take full responsibility for it, there are no justifications, excuses, or rationalizations for my behavior. I, in acts of idolatry, chose sin over God. Later in the letter, he says, Because of my sin, I have disqualified myself from the office of elder. Furthermore, I have no desire to pursue ministry of any kind. End letter. He goes on to talk about how he failed his congregation, but Jesus will never fail them. This is what a man does when he disqualifies himself. He walks away from the pulpit. Now, I'm going to leave the husband of one wife section, but I'm, but I'm not avoiding any hard questions. Like, what about men who have been divorced? What about women elders? What about homosexual pastors? I'll answer all of those questions in my application. Verse 6. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now again, we understand Paul isn't saying every elder has to have children. Like in the marriage case, he's dealing with the norm. But, but notice the verse, it, because it does appear that Paul is saying you can't be a pastor unless your children are believers. And if that's the case... At what age? Age four? Age seven? Sixteen? I think John Piper has two of his five children who aren't believers. Does this mean he can't be a pastor? 
Unfortunately, our translators aren't helping us here. The problem lies in the adjective translated believers, the, the Greek word pista, can be translated actively as believe or passively as faithful in the context always determines. And I'm really not sure why the translators go believers in the place of faithful. But every commentator lights them up for it. The context here is clearly one of submission, not salvation. We are dealing with children's beliefs, not behavior. Plus, this is not talking about adult children. And I know this because the Greek word used here is tetna. It denotes children in the home under the parent's authority. And also, this is not isolated segments of time with a child. A child throws a fit after the service and now the pastor has to, what, resign? Man, I would be out of here <laughs> if that were the case. It means you can't be a pastor and say, I can't control these kids. What is demanded is neither conversion nor perfection, but the kind of parental discipline that produces faithful children. In other words, your child can't be acting like Chucky. She can't be like a little spawn of Satan wreaking havoc in Chick-fil-A. You have to control them. Now, before we leave the marriage and children section, let me pose a question. Because some of this seems unfair to me. Why should I be judged pastorally on the basis of my children's behavior? This is how weird that sounds. Let's say I'm the president of an NBA team. It's, it's the draft combine and I meet Steph Curry. And I'm thinking about drafting Steph and so I ask him to put on a glove and I say, let me see you pitch. And he's going to respond, what? If you need me for basketball, why does it matter what my baseball game is like? It's the same thing. Jesus says your home game is connected to your pulpit game. You need to run both well. If you are aspiring for eldership, does your home life suggest you're suited for it? You can't lead your own family. You can't lead the church. And, and the way a man leads his family tells you a lot about how he will lead the church. If he's domineering in the home, he'll be domineering in the church. If he fails to take responsibility in the home, he'll fail to take responsibility in the church. If he fails to lead his wife when she's weak and struggling, he will fail to lead the church when she's weak and struggling. And those times always come. Elders in the church must first be elders in the home. Step number three on the blueprint. Appoint elders who avoid these five things. Now, if you like lists, you're going to love this. You type A'ers, take notes. I've got more lists today than I think I've ever had. But Paul begins verse 7 with for an overseer. Now, he's been talking about elders, and now he's talking about overseers? The Catholic Church maintains these are two separate offices. The bishop or overseer is higher up on the food chain than the elder. They maintain that Paul gives us one list for married elders, married elders, you find that in verse 6, and then Paul gives us a new list for the office of celibate elders or celibate overseers or celibate bishops in verses 7 through 9 where you'll notice there's no reference to wife or children. Well, that's just bad hermeneutics. Paul is not introducing a new church office into the discussion. 
It's the same office. He's just giving a functional title for it. The overseer. Elder overseer. There are many names that refer to the same office. Notice in verse 5 the word elder. In the Greek, that's presbyteros. Then notice in verse 7 the word overseer. In the Greek, that's episkopos. You can easily see how the Presbyterian and Episcopalian denominations created their names from transliterations of these two Greek words. Episcopos, Episcopalian, uh, Presbyteros, Presbyterian. Which is why Baptists have probably been so reluctant to use perfectly biblical titles for this office. One, one guy asked, what's the new hip term you guys use for pastors around there? What's the, you know, the, the hip term. The hip one. Elders? Yeah, yeah, elders. El- that is not hip. That is 2,000 years old. That is a very, we are not trying to be innovative. We are trying strictly to be biblical. The most used term for pastor in the Bible is elder. There are three names that refer to the same office. This, this may help you as you read through the scriptures. Elders. Some of you were actually converted out of Mormonism. And this word brings back bad memories for you. Those were non-biblical elders. We're talking about biblical elders in the scriptures. Elder, then overseer. You find that in verse 7. That is also translated bishop. It is appropriate to call pastors elders or or bishops or or overseers. Bishop and overseer, same word. Third word is pastor or shepherd. You find it in 1 Peter verse 5. So elder, overseer, pastor, pastor, what are they? Notice verse 7 continues. As God's steward. Paul tells Titus, when you appoint these elders, I want you to tell them something specifically. They're stewards. They don't own the church. Jesus owns the church. You care for it. You protect it. But you will give an account to God for every member, every sermon, and every day of your pastorate. I had one guy write me this week from our church, and he's like, man, it's got to be rough to be you. <laughs> These are so big qualifications as a steward. Pastors are not watching over a human institution. They are watching over God's house. Now, let's list the five things elders are to avoid. One, arrogant. Pastors should walk, not strut. Pastors can't be caught up with their importance, blinded by their own reflection. A pastor must not be about macho posturing. He must constantly demonstrate the gospel by admitting when he is wrong and assuming responsibility. Some of you that like football, you may remember Terrell Owens. A pastor can't be a Terrell Owens who was famous for saying, I love me some me. That can't be a pastor. Now notice in the verse, after arrogant, what do we have? Quick-tempered. I used to work for a man who shouldn't have continued pastoring because he lost his temper every staff member, every staff meeting. He, he bullied, he had a short fuse, he was prone to fits of rage and anger. Paul isn't referring to someone who has an occasional burst of anger, but to a person who has a propensity to anger. You can't be a rage monster and be a pastor. Notice as the verse continues, number three, a drunkard. Now, this may surprise you, but abstinence is not mandated for a pastor. Now, I'm a teetotaler. I totally abstain from alcohol. But that doesn't mean every pastor has to. What does the verse mean that that you are not to be a drunkard? 
It means Jose Cuervo and Jim Bean make bad accountability partners. <laughs> Pastors don't need to have those. One of, if not the largest church in South Carolina, fired their pastor, Perry Noble, for breaking this very qualification. He went on to start a church in the same city after fire. Number four, violent. The King Jimmy says, a striker. Can't be a striker. You can't be Conor McGregor. You can't strike out at others with your fist or your words. A biblical elder doesn't have a vicious tongue. Or white knuckles and clenched fists. Mark Driscoll was fired for this. All of these guys, after they're fired by their elder boards, they, they go out, get under their elder boards, and start other churches. Greedy for gain, number five. Greedy for gain. One Roman poet said that the Cretans were as eager for riches as bees are for honey. So Paul tells Titus, Titus, I know it seems like everyone on the island is greedy for money. But don't dare put one of them in an elder slot. Their ministry will favor the wealthy. They will be easily bought and they'll want to fleece the flock instead of feed the flock. Step number four. Assign elders who do these six things. It's another list for you. I call this a, a junk drawer for elders. Notice in verse eight, what's the, what's the first on the list? Hospitable. Crete, the island, had lots of first century motels and inns led by innkeepers. Uh, Plato referred to an innkeeper as a pirate who held his guests for ransom. Inns were notorious for their immorality, often serving as village brothels. That's why pastors needed to be hospitable. Travelers didn't have a five-star Hilton in the city. A pastor can't be a hermit or a recluse. He must not be someone who, who wants always to be isolated from people. A pastor can't always be with books. He also needs to be with people. He can't simply love the church in an abstract manner. He needs to love real people. We have people in our home all the time. And they always say, I've never been in a pastor's home. Now like half of those are non-Christian, so that's not super surprising, but... The other half have been in church their whole lives. It's very surprising. One of the requirements is hospitable. Number two, lover of good. Now, may this be true of all of us, every man and elder. Your taste in music, movies, and YouTube clips, are you loving what's good? Number three, self-controlled. Self-control in every area of a pastor's life, diet, time, mouth, exercise, relationships, sex, and money. The pastor must be under mental and emotional control. Fourth, upright. He has integrity in his relationships and how he treats others. Everything is above board. Fifth, holy. Are your pastors holy? Sixth, disciplined. He needs to be disciplined. If he's not, he will quit when times are hard. And he'll break and run. In the West, we have a generation of men who want to live and are encouraged to live as perpetual children. They aim to avoid responsibility rather than bearing it. Pastors have to be disciplined. Step number five. Install elders who are word-centered. Notice verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice that all the other qualifications are character qualities. This is the only ability-based requirement. Pastors need, elders need, to be able to teach the word. In the same qualification list in 1 Timothy, it phrases it this way, able to teach. And some churches try to make a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Like there's two separate groups of people. Some of you that came from the Presbyterian background, some of you that came from secular elder board backgrounds will notice that we do this differently. Every elder in the Bible is a teaching and preaching elder. In a very white-collar church, you might have members that include a lot of mid-level and senior-level executives. It's simply assumed that because these people are leaders in the larger culture, that they should be leaders in the local church. But that is dangerous. We don't choose elders because they are successful, wealthy businessmen. They have to meet the biblical qualifications, including able to teach. Occasionally, occasionally you'll find someone who's a wonderful communicator, but they don't have much to communicate. Alternatively, you'll find some, some people who have a massive knowledge, but they can't get, across, can't get anything across to people. In both cases, they're ruled out of this office. A pastor must have pristine character and theological competency. If you're missing one of the two, you're disqualified. Charles Spurgeon was known for not admitting men into his pastor's college, frankly, because they were bad public speakers. He said, if the gift of utterance be not there in a measure at the first, it is not likely it will ever be developed. Now, it is my opinion that church leaders, church leaders in America have become experts at dissecting life but not the word of life. They exegete life and illustrate with scripture instead of exegete scripture and illustrate with life. They can quote John Maxwell, but not John the Apostle. And they structure church around a TED talk instead of this Titus talk. I, I want to tell you something as one of your pastors, one of your elders, one of your bishops, one of your overseers. I just want to tell you something as, as one of them. You can tell when we stop loving you. It's when we stop preaching the Bible. When you leave and say, did he even, even, did Kyle even touch the Bible today? Now let me give you three applications. And then we're finished. Application number one. What are we going to do with this text? Application number one. Even if you live on an island, do not live on a spiritual island. Be a member of a local church. If you're not a member of a local church, there are whole sections of the Bible you can't obey. Like, like Hebrews 13, 17, submit to your elders and pray for your elders. One of, my member, one of our members emailed us this week um, giving her thoughts about the passage and she said, I'm convicted that I, that I haven't been praying for my elders like I should have. Some of you, you go, I love you. That's not how I say that for us. Some of you go to our church for two weeks, and then you go to another church for two weeks, and then you're back at our church for two weeks, and I don't know who you are biblically. 
There's no one like you in the New Testament. No one does that. They're all connected to a local church. Notice Paul's missionary strategy. Preach the gospel, then organize Christians into local elder-led congregations. You need to be so close to your elders that you can know if they aren't meeting these biblical qualifications. Because, our, because of the transient nature of our church, people tell me all the time, I now live in Georgia, but you're still my pastor. I now live in Cali, but you're still my pastor. And, and they're meaning to, to compliment us, but I always tell them, that is unhealthy. You need to find a local church there and find pastors there to lead and feed you. And I'll tell you the same thing. Your elders aren't John MacArthur or John Piper or Tim Keller or Kevin DeYoung. Your elders are, are Kyle Sharon and Daniel, Dan Herbster, six months, Daniel Hurd. YouTube is a bad place to go to church and podcasts is a bad place to find local elders. Years ago, a group of people began uh, gathering and listening to David Platt and John Piper on the internet. They gathered in a living room. After a while, they realized they needed a pastor, a flesh and blood pastor, a local living pastor. So, Andy Schmitz, who is now a member of our church, stepped in and pastored them. Later, Andy wrote an article entitled, Platt wasn't enough for my church. I echoed that statement. You need real life elders. We, we've had people in this church move here from John Piper's church, from Tim Keller's church. You know why they're here on a Sunday morning and not merely podcasting their old pastors? Because I'm better than those guys. <laughs> no, no, we know that's not the case. Because they need real life pastors. Dan Herbster in the flesh is better than Keller on a screen. Supplement with podcasts, but submit to your local elders. You say, what if I don't get any meat from them? Well, you've got bigger problems. You need to get under elders that can feed you. Application number two. Let's answer three hard questions about who can pastor, biblically. Question number one. What if a church appoints a homosexual pastor? Kyle, when Paul listed five things to avoid, being homosexual was not on the list. It's not on the list. So that has to be okay. My answer is it's de facto on the list. God speaks clearly about someone living that lifestyle. Now, having same-sex attraction is different, but living that lifestyle is clearly forbidden. Sam Alberry, who's a faithful expositor, faithful pastor, grew up in that lifestyle, and he still has same-sex attraction, but he's, he's not living the lifestyle. There are other sins that aren't on the list, but expected not to be a part of a pastor's life. If, if my church moved on this, like the Methodist churches are doing, I would question if my leaders are even believers. Question number two. What if my church appoints a lady as a pastor? Now, I want to deal with this pointedly but compassionately because I know you and I know our church. Some of you, your mother is a pastor. Your niece is a pastor. You send them my sermons. You guys talk about it. I promise they're not going to like when you send them this one. There are no biblical grounds for a woman being a pastor or doing the function of a pastor preaching. If there were a third Timothy that said, 
women could be pastors. I, I would be ordaining D. Larry next week. <laughs> There's just not a third Timothy that gives that allowance. Now, this doesn't mean that your mother and niece aren't Christians. This isn't on the same level as the previous question. It doesn't mean they don't know Christ. It means biblically, according to Titus, they are in disobedience and therefore I I couldn't be a member of that church. Now some of you may be thinking, Kyle, I think you're in the minority. Virtually every megachurch has women preaching, women elders. And you're right. I am absolutely in the minority. However, we have people in our church who have lived their whole life as a minority and they teach me how to live in it. By the way, I am not the minority historically in every century except for this one. I am not in the minority geographically in every country besides this one. I am not in the minority among respected Bible scholars. History and majority of scholars agree with FFC's position. Also, Titus and 1 Timothy agree, which is far more important than all the rest. Now, I could deal with any single verse someone brings about women pastoring or women preaching. Deborah in the Old Testament. Rarely ever open up the Old Testament unless it's the Deborah argument. Deborah in the Old Testament. I can deal with that. Corinthians passage where they say it's preaching. It's predicting. Acts. Any scholar worth their salt realizes that's a transitional period. God has been unfolding this drama of redemption. He's been unfolding what the church structure should look like. And people want to go everywhere but the two places where God has clearly laid, laid out where pastors, who pastors should and shouldn't be. 1 Timothy and Titus. Now pastors will say, this is a small issue. It's a small issue. Kyle, you're making too big of a deal of it. It's a small issue. It's not a small issue. You're not breaking unity if you speak up about it. I'm a pastor. Can I tell you a trick that pastors use all the time when they are self-conscious or so insecure they can't handle any pushback? They say you're breaking unity in the church. Doctrine is more important than unity. You have no biblical unity without doctrine. Nine Marks put out a theological journal on this issue. We'll have a link to it on our social media later today. Some of the strongest theologians in our church are women. This isn't about worth or intelligence. It's about biblical order. Our strongest female theologians in this church would leave this church if we ordained women as pastors. Now, the third question is the hard one. The previous two are clearly, you know, you you possess a decent hermeneutic and you can deal with those easily. Question number three is hard. What if a church appoints a divorced man as a pastor? This has many layers to it. Of course, if he's pastoring and he has an affair, he's disqualified, that's easy. But what about a man who was divorced 15 years ago and has been faithful to his new wife for 15 years? What about divorced and never remarried like Charles Stanley? The ground further divides on whether the divorce was biblical, biblical reasons for the divorce, or non-biblical. And then even more, what if the divorce was before conversion instead of after conversion? Again, I'll point you back to the phrase in verse 6 that says husband of one wife. What does that mean? Literally in the Greek, it doesn't refer to a man's marital history. Rather, is he faithfully devoted to his current spouse? It doesn't refer to a man's marital history. Now, that's the Greek. You cannot like the Greek, but that's the Greek. 
And forgive me for being clear where God is clear and gray where he is gray. Whom is Paul wishing to exclude from the pastorate by his statements? Well, some groups says polygamist. Justin Martyr wrote that in this time period, Jewish teachers were permitting men to have four to five wives. Alistair Begg says polygamy was part of the island culture. So some say they're trying to exclude polygamist. Then others say they're trying to exclude a man who has been divorced, any divorce ever in, in his history. Let me just tell you where I fall. Exegetically, I do not think it's talking about marital history. If it was, you know me, I wouldn't be afraid to say it. It's just in, exegetically, it's not referring to that. If a man were divorced and remarried before salvation, and then he's been faithfully married for 15 years, I could see where a church would count him eligible to be a pastor. Now, I think it's a case-by-case -case issue, and each local church's elders can, can make their decision on that. I wanted to say that because this issue isn't on the same level as the previous two. You can differ on this within the same local church. Let me, let me illustrate it by giving you a, a chart. These are some men that have said no to a divorced pastor. These are some men that have said yes to a divorced pastor. Daniel Aiken says no. J. Mac, John MacArthur, I'm pretty sure he says, he says um, no. I've read him a lot this week. Um, so I'm thinking he's no there as well. But it's, but it's interesting. Everyone on the chart, all scholars, if they, even if they say no to a divorced pastor, they're not saying no on the basis of husband of one wife verse. They're saying no based on he's not above reproach verse. So all the scholars agree it's not referring necessarily to his, his marital history. Now, people that say yes, Tim Ch Tom Schreiner has a video. You can look it up online. Excellent. Just an excellent, fair treatment of it. John R. Stock, Kent Hughes, Brian Ch Bill Mounts. Bill Mounts is a Greek scholar. Um, okay, application number three. This is the last one. Give me... Give me uh, Give me four, four minutes. Application number three. How does this text point me to Christ? This whole passage should lead you not to put your faith in your local shepherds, but place it in your chief shepherd. The only one who fulfills this list perfectly. Just think about the list. Hospitable. Jesus loved you when you were a stranger. Lover of good. He's the only one who knows no evil. Holy. He's the spotless lamb of God. Upright, no charge against him would stick. In fact, this entire passage is a portrait of Jesus Christ. Now we began talking about fixers. Political fixers get you out ahead of your sin. Crime scene fixers cover up your sin. Mafia fixers allow you to get away with your sin. But there is one, the ultimate fixer, who came to bear your sin. The chasm between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God could not be fixed until Christ invaded time and space, became a man, lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and appeased the wrath of God. What did he appease the wrath of God with? His righteousness. See, see your heart rightly yearns for a fixer because it's pointing you to the ultimate fixer who handled the only problem that could actually destroy you. Sin. What a wonderful fixer. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, 
as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.